This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. So today we're calling on both platforms to stay at the table, work through the regulatory process with us, contribute their fair share, and keep news on their platforms. It's good for the platforms, good for news in Canada, good for Canadians, good for our democracy. The Online News Act, known to many as Bill C-18, has continued to create a political firestorm this summer with a legislative battle that leaves the future of some Canadian news organizations stuck between saber-rattling from the government and internet platforms. Chris Waddell is a professor at and former director of the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University in Ottawa and also holds the university's Cardi Chair in Business and Financial Journalism. He's worked at the CBC and the Globe and Mail, where he won two National Newspaper Awards. He joins me on the podcast to provide much-needed context on the current moment in Canadian media and to offer some thoughts on what may lie ahead. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for inviting me, Michael. Yeah, I'm really glad you're taking the time. Uh, As you know, and I think certainly anyone who's listening to this knows, journalism, Bill C-18, have emerged as, as major political issues in recent week, uh, weeks as the, the war of words between Google, Facebook, and, and the government continue to escalate. Now, I've devoted a lot of time to the bill on my podcast, and certainly we can touch on some specifics in the bill, but I'm really even more interested in your perspective more broadly on where the media is at and the appropriate role of the government. Now, we've seen an attempt to frame this legislation as a response to tech companies using the news. Sometimes they talk, people talk about linking. Other times they say it's taking or we've, I've even seen stealing the news to dominate digital advertising. But what's, what's your view on, on what's happened over the past decade that's put us in the current situation? Well, I want to go back a little further than the past decade and actually actually go back to the late 1990s, because I think there's a whole series of threads of things that have happened over the past 25 years or so that are now come together and produced what we have at the moment. And I go back to the period of late 1990s when Conrad Black started the National Post, and he at the same time bought the uh, the Southern News chain, which is which at that time was all newspapers in a lot of the major cities in Canada, except Toronto. Uh, when he created the National Post, he created it to take on the Globe and Mail. And in order to take on the Globe and Mail, he needed to build circulation. So what the Post did, and we got into a newspaper war in the late 1990s, the internet was coming along at that point too, but it was still a newspaper war. And and what he did to try to build circulation was the National Post started to give away free newspapers. So if you actually were in Toronto and you were taking the GO train into work in Toronto somewhere, in the morning you'd be met by people from the Globe and Mail, the National Post, and the Toronto Star, all handing out free newspapers to people because they wanted there was a battle for circulation. At the same time, We also saw there was also a bunch of free newspapers, transit papers, kind of Metro was one of them. There were others that were um, being given away to people who were riding on transit systems. And that was in Ottawa and a bunch of other cities. And also also uh, Toronto was a big battleground. The message that came from all that in the early 1990s, late 1990s was, I think, that news is free or that news doesn't have very much value. Uh, So hang on to that and let's pick up on a few other strains of what's gone on. The response to the internet in the early 19 in the early 2000s by news organizations was what was called convergence, and that means that previously there used to be a, a radio stations, television stations, newspapers were owned by different people and communities, and part of that was a com- was for competition reasons because the argument was if one entity controlled the radio, television, and newspapers in a community, they could both 
set the advertising rates for the community, and they could also undercut anyone else who tried to come in because they had the financial power and could, in fact, enforce the monopoly. That all changed with the internet, and, and the response to that was to allow convergence. So we saw the emergence of, of entities that could own newspapers, radio stations, television stations, and websites. Uh, CanWest Global was one of them, and that was Conrad Black as well. Uh, CTV was bought by Bell, and Bell had a connection to the Toronto Star as well, and, and there were others as well. The theory behind that was that uh, the, the the management theory behind that was that the um, it, that you could get ad, place ad, ads on radio, television, newspapers, and and online, and that would all be done, uh, and they would all support a story written by one journalist who could actually write one story for all the different news organizations. So you could increase your advertising revenue by about four four times, while at the same time also cutting, in some cases, cutting your number of journalists you had. What we saw in this period was um, a lot of this, the, the creation of convergence was done through debt financing, people, uh, companies borrowing money. And once they borrowed money, they had to make, cut, they had to make the interest payments. So they started to cut back on numbers of reporters, even back in the early 2000s. So for instance, um, a, news, uh, uh, a chain like the like Can West would say, we've got 12 major newspapers, newspapers in 12 major cities. Why do we need 12 movie reviewers? Why can't we just do it with one movie reviewer for everyone? So we started to see a cutback in journalists and journalism uh, in journalists those days as newsrooms started to get a little bit smaller. 2006, along came the um, Craigslist and subsequently Kijiji. Uh, and these two free classified advertising sites really started to undercut the advertising revenue that news, newspapers and uh, newspapers primarily made. And 80% of newspapers revenue came from advertising back in those days. Uh, so they were starting to cut into it in 2006. And as they as as they started to develop their own sites uh, for where, pe where people could buy and sell things for free without having to place ads. Uh, move ahead a little bit to 2008 and 2009. And we had what was in effect the um, a global economic meltdown. Canada avoided a lot of that, but still, um, in the United States, it was very bad due to subprime mortgages. Sharp rise in unemployment. Um, the economy slowed down quite dramatically. Uh, people stopped advertising, and the people who were most directly hit in 2008, 2009, the the, the businesses were the financial services sector, the uh, the retail sector. When people are unemployed, they're not buying as much stuff in stores. Automotive sector, General Motors and Chrysler in the United States both went into bankruptcy protection and were rescued by the Canadian American government, and and real estate. And those sectors, uh, those actually are the four key sectors that were uh, that were the primary advertisers on a lot of news organizations, both print, radio, and television. They cut back their advertising dramatically. And when they cut back their advertising dramatically, well, that was happening. Something else was going on too, and that's that Facebook and Google were perfecting their advertising model. And their advertising model offered advertisers the potential to. Um, target a market very, very narrowly, a community, a part of a community, uh, and and uh, almost down to street addresses using IP addresses. Um, they also could they also could see who was actually clicking on the site, who was clicking on the ad, and then in addition to that, they could also put something on an ad that said, "Well, if you're interested in more information, send us your email address, and we'll and we'll send it to you." So they were able to build their own audience, and Google and Facebook were able to do that. And at the same time, offer uh, advertisers rates that were significantly cheaper than news organizations. And news organizations couldn't match any of those features because they didn't, they weren't equipped to do that. So what we saw was uh, the start of the move of advertising away from much uh, advertising that, that went away during the, the recession or whatever you want to call 2008, 2009. Much of it never came back to newspapers at that point because this new 
tool, uh, advertising online, had developed a degree of sophistication that made it both cheaper and a better deal for advertising. Um, news organizations, at the same time, news organizations were getting, uh, were taking advantage of the uh, of Google and Facebook by posting or having posted some of their stories online. And their hope was that that people would see it on Facebook, would click on Facebook, look, click on it on Facebook, which would be a headline and maybe two lines, two or three lines of text. They would click on it and go to the news organization's website. Then once they were at the news organization's website, the, the reader would read the story that had drawn them in there and then would spend some time around the site looking for different things, reading different things, seeing there were also other stories about sports if they're interested in sports or about news or about their community and would go to those sites. And so the traffic generated by that and the advertising revenue generated by that would then go to the news organization. So the news organizations thought they would be in a good position because of all that. At the same time, around 2009, 2010, uh, with the decline in advertising, we saw um, convergence collapse. So Canwest Global went out of business, was bankrupt. Its television operation was, went, went to Shaw. Its uh, print operation went to Post Media. Um, Bell got out of its involvement with the Globe and Mail and uh, CTV. And, and the idea that you can, could converge everything uh, collapsed uh, partly because, in large part, because the theory upon which was based in a news, on a news sense didn't make any sense. And the theory was that one journalist could write something for all the different news organizations. It's, it's like saying you've had someone in to paint your house, and since they're a painter, while well, they're also coming in, could they do a couple of group of seven paintings for you while you're there? Television journalists are different than radio journalists, and they're different than than uh, than print than what were print journalists. The technology was also getting easier to do that, so more of that work could be loaded on the backs of the existing reporters that were still there. So the news organizations thought they had a good situation initially with traffic being driven to them by the social media sites and they would reap the benefits in advertising in advertising and in, in traffic on their sites. But what we discovered over the next few years uh, was that in fact people um, would be driven to the news sites, but they would only look at the story that sent them to the news sites. They wouldn't hang around the news sites to see what else might be available on the news sites. And so the news organizations wouldn't get the benefit that they thought they were going to get. But what happened is the news organizations discovered that instead of people being driven to their sites by Facebook and Google and then hanging around the news sites and doing different things, they'd go read the specific story that sent them to the news site and then they'd go back to whatever else they were doing. So news organizations were no long, were not getting the benefit they thought they were going to get from the traffic being driven to them by Google and Facebook. So they started to think, well, and, and at the time, more and more of their advertising was disappearing because Google and Facebook had a better advertising product that was taking the business away from what used to be the, gone to the news media. So the news media start to think about what else should we can, could we do? Now, one of their options could have been to try to improve the quality of their news sites. In fact, if you look these days at news organizations' websites, they're pretty um, ugly uh, for a user experience. On the user experience level, uh, sometimes there's only a sentence in a story before you look at an ad, then another sentence and another ad. Uh, if you're, you're looking at a video site, you may have to watch three, four, or five ads before you see a, a piece of uh, whatever the video is, is you want to see. So, so news organizations have never done anything to try to make their sites significantly more attractive and more alluring to, to audiences. Instead, they decided that it'd be better to talk to government and see if government could help them out. So initially, we had, uh, and, and, and through much of this time as well, um, government was still, the liberal government was still infatuated with the, with the social media sites. 
when she was the heritage minister, Melanie Jolie was down in California visiting them all, and everybody thought they were they were great and they were wonderful, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what what initially happened was the government came up with a program of six hundred million dollars to uh, to assist the news industry, and it would that be the newspaper business primarily, and it was made up of a, mostly labor subsidies to subsidize uh, the salary of some employees. There was also a 15% tax credit for people who subscribe to certain digital publications. And there were also opportunities to take advantage of, uh, of uh, the ability to convert a news organization into a not-for-profit that could obtain charitable donation status. So someone who contributed to it would get a, a tax receipt from, from that they could use to lower their own taxes. Um, those There was a $600 million program started about five years ago. Interestingly enough, the um, Department of Finance's tax expenditure report has just come out. And we see that so far, in fact, only about half of all those things have been taken up. Um, so, the, so the government only spent maybe 250 or $300 million over five years on that. The problems with all that were that, that, um, that first of all, the labor subsidy, there was no objective. So it's impossible to know whether, in fact, the objective is being met or not. Uh, presumably, the objective was to keep the industry going, and instead it's been shrinking for all this time. The tax credit doesn't really work. Boutique tax credits, um, the conservative government of Stephen Harper tried boutique tax credits. They did one for... Uh, uh, urban transit, they did one to get people to uh, sign a children up to uh, play uh, in sports, those sorts of things. The objective in both those cases was to encourage more people to do these activities. The problem is that, in fact, overwhelmingly, the beneficiaries were the people who were already doing them. And now we're just getting a tax break for something they were doing already. In the news media case, the, the, there's a specific problem in that the issue with a 15% tax credit for a digital subscription is not that it, the digital subscription is, is, too, is too expensive. The issue is that the competition is that you can get news for free. So why would you pay anything for news? And that goes back kind of to the, to the late 1990s, even for some people when news was being given away. So at that point, um, that hasn't worked. That hasn't changed anything. We're still in a cycle of that we've really been in for about 20 years now, which is a cycle that says um, advertisers bail out of, of news media and head to Google and Facebook. When they bail out of news media to go to Google and Facebook, the news media is getting less revenue than it was getting before. When it gets less revenue, it decides that it can no longer have the number of reporters that it had before. So it cuts back on the number of reporters. That means the content in the news organization is less, there's less than it was before. Things that used to be there aren't there anymore. Or, or the material, the stories that are being written don't have the depth or the knowledge or the context that people used to expect from their news organization, whether it's a local one or, or radio or television. The audiences sort of say, well, why do I still need to read or listen or watch? So people, audiences have been leaving. When they leave, that means that um, the circulation or the audience numbers have gone down. So that means that uh, the advertising that still is in news media, the owners of news media can't charge as much for that advertising because it's not reaching as many people as it was reaching before. So they get less revenue. So they cut back more on reporters and reported less material means fewer people are interested. So more people leave. And it's a cycle that has been repeating itself for, for six or seven years. The answer from the news industry was to reframe their views of Google and Facebook. And instead of seeing them as people who would drive traffic to, to the news media sites, now saw them as predators who were stealing or taking away their, uh, their, uh, their content, when in fact that really wasn't happening. But that's how we got to uh, where we are with C18. And the lobbying for the news industry persuaded the government to proceed and also having had the example of, of a similar sort of arrangement in Australia, persuaded the government in Canada, in Canada to try to pursue this effort to force Google and Facebook to give some of the money they've made in advertising revenue to the news organizations that used to have the advertising but don't have it anymore. 
that that's quite a tour de force. What a history lesson. And I think what you've succeeded in doing <laughs> is really demonstrating how how much more complex the this issue is, you know. Absolutely. There's been this, you know, this attempt to say it's it's simple. It's just no. you know, advertising's gone from these people to those people, let those people pay. And you know, I think you've highlighted that there's so and, and, much more at, at work. And if I can add one other thing in the midst of all that, and 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 I mean I'm 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 to some degree critical of the lack of innovation in the news industry, but I also, on the other hand, understand some of the problems the news industry had. If the news industry, particularly newspapers, um had been able to stop printing and just go online. The economics of the business changes dramatically. You no longer need to buy paper. You no longer, longer need to buy ink. You no longer need to either have capital tied up in printing presses or hire or pay someone to print your publication. And you no longer need to distribute it. And so what you need in the way of revenue is much different than it would have been in the old environment. And in fact, you may be able to survive by doing a good job of selling more digital subscriptions. But the problem the news industry faced is the people who were still subscribers to the print versions tended to be their most dedicated, uh, their most dedicated and longstanding customers. And the news organizations have been afraid that if they, in effect, tell them to get lost by stopping printing a publication, they won't be able to replicate that with new people who will buy the on, only the online version. So that's some of the challenge they face too. Yeah, no, that I, it's a great point. It actually provides a really useful segue because there's a, there's another aspect that I wanted you I wanted you to unpack a little bit that is more complex, I think, than than initially meets the eye, and that is the innovation that is taking place, especially in that digital space, as you highlight. So governments often point to the news closures and the lost jobs, and it's clear those are real. But it's also, I think, clear that there's also been an innovation that has been taking place sometimes in in local communities or in uh, particular sectors of the media side can can you talk a bit about the innovation that is taking place if not by some of the larger players that you referenced by some of the new emerging entrants that have come into the space sure the, 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 and those entrants are, are exclusively digital they're not producing they're not producing a printed product so that in fact uh, right off the top changes the dynamic the changes the equation on on uh on economics in terms of both revenue and and also uh, and also cuts a significant amount of your expenditures. The place the people that are that have, have done well and are doing well are people who have have taken a different approach than first of all they're online and in most cases they've taken a different approach than the traditional news organizations. Rather than trying to be something for everyone and have national international some local news sports entertainment lifestyle uh, whatever else it might be all within one big package they've tended to focus on one or two specific issues so maybe it's the environment and climate change maybe it's sports maybe it's arts and entertainment maybe it's politics and and what they're counting upon is two things that have happened which is that that as mainstream news organizations have shrunk and, and become smaller they have less and less uh, their reporters are facing more and more pressures to do more things. They're losing their expertise. Uh, and the stories that they're producing no longer have the depth or the context that they used to have. Meanwhile, these publications that have hired people are, are have got reporters who only focus on the one or two issues. And so they have an opportunity to understand them more, to be able to explain them more, to find more stories, and to be able to do things do do things and produce stories in whatever format online that their audience is interested in and that their audience can't get anywhere else. And so the audiences think that I'm getting better material on a subject that I'm really interested in and, and I'm getting stories I don't see anywhere else and it's being done and it's being done by um, in a way that gives me more depth and understanding of what the issues are. So, so they're prepared to pay money for it. 
And what they're prepared to do is, is buy subscriptions or make donations. And we've seen a significant amount of that. I'm thinking of publications like the Narwhal, the National Observer, the Taiyi in Vancouver has done this a lot and there are other ones as well. The other, the other group that's done particularly well so far has been a, an organization called Village Media, which has gone into a lot of communities where the local newspaper or a local news, uh, news organization, whether it might be radio or television or, or print, has gone out of business. Uh, and have, they've been shut down by the big entities that own them as part of this consolidation and cutback and trying to save money, et cetera, et cetera. So Village Media has gone in and set up an online news site for the local community. They've hired, in most cases, they tend to hire some of the journalists who used to work for the for the organizations that have shut down. So they're people who already know the community and the organization. And, and they're producing local news. And it's both getting advertising and also getting attention from in communities. Uh, started in Sault Ste. Marie. It's in a bunch of other communities in Ontario now and, in, and, and expanding a little bit across the country as well. Um, and, and so they're getting ad, local advertising revenue. And they've also found a way to make posting material on Facebook and having mentioned in Google pay off for them. And they, they are quite happy working with Google and Facebook because they see that doing what the news industry tradition originally thought it was going to do, which is drive traffic to them. And they believe through the, the, through the tools that they have, they're able to take advantage of that and use the audience that's come to them to stick around and see other things on their site and, and use that audience to make some revenue as well. So that seems to be working too. So, but the, the key in all this is really, um, Smaller entities that are more that are more focused and uh, or and that have a, a a specific news mandate rather than trying to do everything for everybody. You know, given that innovation that is taking place, what are your thoughts on, on government intervention? You you highlighted a whole series of different programs and noted that in fact some haven't even been taken up to the level the government first anticipated. But particularly now that we find ourselves enmeshed very much in the in Bill C eighteen and its implementation, what are your thoughts on on whether or not those kinds of interventions either help or hurt the sort of innovation that you just referenced? Well, I think with C-18, it's not clear what's going to happen yet. And and I wouldn't even begin to guess. I mean, the move that took place this week uh, with, with the government issuing some sort of statement about what the regulations might actually contain, we'll see what it actually means when we get, we get further along. But where I think government has been most unhelpful in the last little while is, um, is particularly as it relates to its own entity, the CBC. Uh, and the when the broadcasting CBC was living under the Broadcasting Act of 1991 for a long time, and government the the media environment and the world environment, which was 1991, was of course pre pre internet for all purposes. But the media environment and the global environment, audience habits, everything else have changed dramatically in that period of time. And and the government, I would say, the federal government needs to clearly state what role it perceives the public broadcaster to have in the new media environment. We're in a ridiculous situation at the moment where at one and the same time, we have the government of Canada subsidizing, as I was talking about, the labor costs and other costs of, of, uh, of news organizations uh, that have lost advertising. And at the same time, the CBC is competing against those news organizations by selling advertising itself, taking away the revenue from the private media that the that the uh, that that has helped maintain private media up to now. So and that makes no sense at all for government to be both and, and the government at the same time is also um, contributing more than $1.2 billion to the CBC through its parliamentary appropriation. So it makes no sense at all for the public broadcaster to be competing against the private broadcaster um, in adver in, for advertising. So what the government of Canada, I would argue, is a starting point needs to do is lay out what role it perceives the public broadcaster to have in the future in the future media environment in the country. 
And once it lays out what it thinks the, um, the public broadcaster should do, then that gives private media companies an opportunity to determine, do they want to focus on areas that the public broadcaster is not focused on? Do they want to compete against the public broadcaster? How do they want to do that? And, and the second part of it, I, I would argue, is the public broadcaster needs to get out of advertising. And um, uh, with a, a friend, David Terrace at uh, Mount Royal University, we wrote a book about the CBC about four or five years ago called The End of the CBC, published by University of Toronto Press. I'll, I'll, I'll promote it for a moment. Um, uh, it unfortunately came out two weeks before the pandemic happened, uh, began and everything locked down. But what we proposed was for a very different CBC that focused on a few issues and essentially focused on news and current affairs and essentially got out of everything else. And, and but it focused only on a certain certain some news and current affairs in certain subject areas and left considerable room for private media to do to do what it wants to do and to on a different basis on an advertising basis but but that's a that's a starting point beyond that I think it's not clear I mean it, it's clear that c18 is not going to actually give money to everybody uh, at least I think it's clear that it's not going to give money to everybody and in fact some of the people who who we talked about a minute ago who are um who seem to be the most innovative, because they're focusing on a narrow subject or two, may not be eligible for any money at all. So, so uh, it, it feels to me that the money that may flow to somebody, if in fact it ever does, um, may not be flowing to the people who have the best chance of survival in the future. And we may end up continuing to, to subsidize organizations that, that don't appear to have much chance of long-term survival. That certainly was an issue that was raised before committee about who some of the beneficiaries would be. Now that that the, that right. potential flow of money is dependent, obviously, even on Meta and Google, for, you know, essentially participating in this. If they follow through on what they've said, which is the way they'll comply with the legislation, is to stop linking or new sharing on their platforms. Um, what do you, you know, if they go ahead with that? Obviously, there isn't going to be money coming from them as part of this bill. But what do you see as the as the bigger impact or the impact on on Canadian media more broadly? If in fact these are these companies are not bluffing, well, uh, I think there's two there's two uh, impacts. One of which is the impact of some news organizations had struck deals with with Google or or Meta, Facebook, Instagram, whatever you want to call them, um, to actually get some revenue from them in the past little while, past few years. Um, if they pull out completely, it appears all those agreements will end and news media will miss um, the revenue. Some news organizations will miss the revenue they're getting at the moment. They'll all, the second thing that will happen is there will be less, there's no doubt that that by posting it on Facebook or Instagram and by uh, being stories being featured on Google, it does drive traffic to the news organization websites. So those news organizations that have managed to take advantage of that for their own purposes and generate revenue themselves or find other ways of engaging audiences to keep them on their websites will lose that traffic. And losing that traffic will be a significant financial hit to all those, to those news organizations. Uh, leaving aside the other news organizations that had hoped to get a, uh, some sort of bonanza from Facebook and Google that they obviously won't get if they're not doing anything. So, so it, it 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 won't just be status quo. There will be some people who will be set back, uh, and it will be both large news organizations that have struck deals with with uh, Google or or Facebook, and people who may have new ideas and new ways of thinking about how to use the traffic that's driven to their own website by the social media companies won't get an opportunity to test that and see whether they can make it work or not. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's a potential setback for those that are looking to use those platforms to innovate, and and obviously also a setback for well, potential setback for those that that are actually making are money off of these companies. It will be 
a lost opportunity for people who want to innovate and try to do things. And the people like the village medias who actually have figured out a way to try to use the traffic driven to them by Google and Facebook will lose that traffic. And that will be a significant financial hit to them. Yeah, no, I th and I think that's yeah. consistent with what Village Media told certainly the Senate when they appeared. Yeah. You know, you you mentioned the the deals that have been struck. Uh, one of the issues that people have raised around those kinds of deals is a lack of transparency. So appears that not nobody, it seems, neither the platforms nor the media companies want to be particularly transparent about what they're getting. The government sometimes suggests that this bill is creates more transparency, although at the end of the day, as far as I can tell, all it does is require just general report from the CRTC. It doesn't give us any of those specific details. What, what are your thoughts on, on the concerns associated with transparency in these kinds of deals? And you have any thoughts on how, how we might go about addressing it? Um, the government of Canada hasn't, doesn't, doesn't believe in transparency in much of anything that it does, as anyone who's been reading the globe. And, and that's also true for provincial and municipal governments largely in this country as well. As anyone who's been reading the Globe and Mail series recently about secrecy and access to information will will demonstrate. Um, even the pro even if you go back and look at things like the labor subsidy um, that government offered uh, to news organizations like Torstar and, and Post Media, uh, it's impossible to figure out who got what because the corporations report it as a line on their financial statements, but they don't break it down. So you don't know in the case of, uh, of, um, of say, Post Media, you don't know how much went to the National Post, how much went to uh, the Ottawa Citizen, how much went to the Calgary Herald. So it becomes impossible to figure out what that money might have been used for and, and, and might have uh, and, and might have tried to retain in terms of jobs or, or media coverage, those things. Um, there's no, I think that the operating principle of the government of Canada for many years and many provincial governments as well has been that information is released under access to information only if they can't find a way to prevent its release as a last, it's released as a last resort. And so this is really a continuation of that. Of course, the material should be made public. There should be um, there should be objectives set for any government subsidy program, so it's possible to test the results from the subsidy against what the objectives were to turn to determine whether the objectives were being met or not. And none of that is happening in these circumstances, near as I can see anyway. Yeah, no, there's very little transparency. Surely on that, and there's been not much. There's been very little transparency, obviously, in the deals themselves between right. the companies. Right. Uh, you know, the, why, don't, why don't we conclude with this? As we record this earlier this week, just a couple of days ago, the government seemed to start to backtrack, at least in terms of some of the regulations, talking about uh, creating a, a minimum spend essentially by the by the platforms. It seems to me if, if that's where things are headed, I don't know that that's going to change very much with respect to Meta or Facebook, but Google clearly is talking to the government. And it feels like at this stage, this entire bill may have shifted towards basically something the government said it wasn't interested in doing, which is a negotiated negotiation between the government and the platform, Google, to decide how much they'd like to see them pay. Um, that might well be the the end game, and we'll see if they're able to reach some sort of agreement. You know, how do you see this playing out? And and I guess even perhaps more importantly, given that there, there's a little bit of an opportunity already to look back. Were there better options for the government when it came to some of these issues to, you know, to, to intervene or perhaps not intervene at all? I think there were better options. Um, it's difficult to know. It's difficult to take us back a little bit time and see where things uh, where things were then and think about what, what was actually going on then. 
but uh, but I, I, I don't have a clue where this is going to end up in the ne- in the next little while. I think increasingly it's there's go- there's a shakeout going on, and it's been going on for a while now in the industry. Like as we talked about, it goes back 25 years. We're now at at a point where where things are going to start to happen one way or the other. I think a better government approach might have been to let the shakeout happen to see who is still left standing at the end of it all, and then decided if a if it wants to provide some sort of support, and b what would be the most effective way of providing that support. Uh, is it a tax credit? Is it grants? Is it is it subsidies? And then have a debate about whether we really want government to be doing that in uh, to news organizations. And what if any obligations, either obvious or subtle, does that place upon news organizations when looking at government in the in the news organization's role of holding people accountable and 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 reporting on what government's doing? Okay, so there there might have been some options, and perhaps uh, holding off seeing well, how, how some of these other things might have played out might have been a been been the starting point. Well, well, you know, I think I think it's also fair to say that the existing news organizations have been in trouble for quite a while. Post media ones, obviously, have been in the sort of um, vicious circle or death spiral, whatever you want to call it, that I described earlier. Uh, I, I think that in some communities and in some circumstances, the existing news organizations still take up a lot of space, and and until you let them determine whether they're going to survive or not, and some won't survive. It's, it may be, it's difficult for people with new ideas and new approaches to come in and try to take and, and try to start them out and see if they can make something work. So I think it really is a situation where, where some of these entities have to disappear before we actually see new organizations come up to take their place with new ideas and new approaches. And, and at that point, to determine whether they can persuade people to, to pay for news. But, it, but as long as the existing entities are hanging on, uh, I think that creates limited opportunity for people with ideas to risk money on on something that they're competing against an entity that still has is that still is around okay all right it's it, interesting thoughts to be sure and uh, obviously uh, we don't really we don't know yet how all of this will play out all we know is that uh, we certainly haven't seen the last chapter so to speak in both bill c18 and uh, the continued efforts well, of legacy media and some of the new innovative media to find ways to get uh, people the news and, and, and uh, two other things I should say just quickly. I think one of the problems that government has faced and still faces is in trying to intervene with legislation in an industry that's changing all the time. And things have changed from the time this bill first came into a, it was first introduced and things will keep on changing. Um, the old way of doing business pre-internet won't exist in the future. Uh, it doesn't exist now as we're seeing. And I, I, I suspect that we're going to continue to see an industry that's disrupted and changed uh, by by technology. I mean, uh, artificial intelligence is the flavor of the week or month, whether that has how, what impact that has, who knows, but trying to write legislation to cover a static period of a static moment in in an environment that is constantly changing is is very difficult to do and maybe not worth trying. That's a, that's a really interesting closing thought, Chris. Uh, thanks for your efforts to try to educate people on on some of these issues both today, but especially giving them the context that's often missing. And and thanks for taking the time to join me on the podcast. Great, Michael. Thanks very much for asking me. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to LawBytes at PO.box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBytesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at MichaelGeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The LawBytes podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. 
Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.